Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Jan Navruzzi and Joanne Spadigam. All right, Imogen, without further ado, you've been seeing a lot of clients in London this week, uh, a lot of travel, a lot of uh, conversations. What were the main takeaways from uh, from interactions with, uh, you know, with our clients? Yeah, we took advantage of what we thought might be finally a quiet week in markets um, and obviously following the kind of major central banks to talk to our clients, catch up with how our views kind of compared to, to theirs. For me, I think um, there were three key takeaways really that came out of our conversations. The first is that we are definitely at the more hawkish end of the spectrum when it came to um, BOE expectations. Um, Certainly amongst the fast money community, there was a real sense that spot headline inflation coming down very quickly over the next couple of months, perhaps even, you know, at or below the Bank of England's 2% target and um, average weekly earnings data continuing to trend down against a relatively weak growth backdrop. All of that would kind of apply um, some political pressure on Governor Bailey to uh, cut rates sooner than we were expecting. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that the conversation was very focused on the scope of easing. I think we are broadly in line, and, and I think that's reflected really in market pricing. We have 100 basis points of easing expected this year, and that's, of course, not, not far from where we are priced in. Um, but really, it was very much about the timing of, of that easing. Um, Although, to be honest, much of the conversation then seemed to focus on kind of May versus August, which <laughs> became a little bit tedious after a while. Um, you start to question whether it, it really makes all that much difference. But but clearly, I don't think anyone's expecting the BOE to sort of cut next week. So when I say that we're at the hawkish end of expectations, it's quite a, a narrow range of expectations, I should say. Um, but yeah, like I say, for us, it's less about the BOE being reactive to spot data now. You know, I think I said on this podcast last week, it feels like the, their reaction function has shifted from being overly reactive to spot data to now being overly reactive to the way that they see the kind of upside risks to inflation evolving. Um, and as I said on the pod last week, and I've said countless times since it's become my new catchphrase since then, which full disclaimer, I stole from Lagarde, although she was saying this is not what we are. Um, they are very much date dependent as they are data dependent. You know, we heard that from Breeden this week that she wants to see, um, you know, the next couple of months of data will be key. They need to see the April wage data. Uh, and as we know, they won't have the, that key kind of Q1 wage data in the UK until after the May meeting. So, so that's a big driver of why we have this slightly more hawkish in terms of timing view than it felt like um, lots of other people did. Um, on this, the second key point, I think, was really with regard to how concerned or not people might be about the supply outlook. Now, there was a mix of views out there, but I think that there was definitely um, growing consensus that actually um, a lot of the front loading of supply that had already happened, particularly from a syndication perspective, when we think about the euro area, for example, um, you know, with a lot of the kind of Q1 syndications now have happened, that had been relatively well digested. Um, and therefore, supply was kind of falling down the list of concerns when it came to yield outlooks for the year ahead. I would 
probably just counter that a little bit and say that, you know, our view has never been that supply was going to weigh and that was going to weigh by, you know, a, a, any one single catalyst, like a big duration event, like a syndication. But actually, it was more this idea that, you know, the weight of supply kind of week in, week out with dealers having to warehouse that risk constantly would cause a gradual cheapening um, in the clearing price of of bonds as the year went on. We kind of saw that at different points last year. And I think that that flows element of supply will still matter this year, um, whether or not the kind of big early year syndications are out the way or not. Um, and then perhaps related to that supply theme, um, one of the, the other kind of high conviction views, I think, that came out of our conversations was very much, especially in the UK, um, that people like to curve flatness. So that is, they expect the yields at the back end of the curve to fall more than um, yields at, at the front end of the curve or rise less, I suppose, um, depending on which way around you think about it. Um, but uh, yeah, and especially in the UK, so kind of cross market, they're expecting that UK curve to, to flatten more than elsewhere. I think that was driven both by this kind of narrative that supply perhaps doesn't weigh as much as we might have expected a couple of weeks ago with this front loading and demand seeming to match that those um, uh, supply events. But also specifically in the UK, um, this idea that the DMO might be responsive to the change in demand and especially at the long end of the curve, the fact that pension fund demand for UK gilts just isn't as high as it has been. And therefore, instead of issuing a lot of long dated bonds, they would actually issue more in the shorts and mediums buckets. Um, and I think there was also a, um, a publication by the Treasury Select Committee after their investigation into quantitative tightening this week that perhaps reinforced that view a little bit that to me, the takeaway from that publication was just that perhaps we're kind of at the limit of the pace of QT. And actually, if anything, you know, the risks, I think, for QT and us queued to the downside on the active sales portion of quantitative tightening. And so that, again, kind of supported this idea of, of a curve flattener, which, um, yeah, I, I agree with the fact that, you know, we're likely to see a shift shorter in the remit. I, I Like I say, that was my conclusion of the piece on the Treasury Select Committee that, you know, the risks to QT and are clearly to the downside. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we should be careful in over-interpreting just how much the DMO might be able to shift their issuance shorter at the, at the remit that we get on the 6th of March, just because there is still so much supply to do um, that, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult for them to be particularly nuanced or nimble in the way that they kind of approach the, the uh, split between the buckets. Um, and similarly with QT, you know, even if we were to say tomorrow, all active sales stop, for example, um, which is not my base case, but in an extreme scenario, if that were the case, there's still, well, in total this year, there's kind of a 50 billion passive runoff of the portfolio and that rises to 90 billion next year. So there's still a sizable passive runoff portfolio that matters, but also the fact that, you know, the I think QT was kind of a marginal negative against a very heavy supply backdrop and, and that will still weigh on yields with or without QT. Imogen, you said the BOER data and date dependent, but next week we have uh, a lot of data from the UK. And do you think based on our forecasts and how we expect you know, things to come in next week, uh, will that matter for their decision in the coming months? 
Yeah, so key data week next week. And of course, given the, the BOE's focus on the persistence of inflation, I mean, I'm sure it goes without saying that what we will be watching most closely will be the um, uh, inflation data, of course, uh, and the wage inflation data, the average weekly earnings. A little bit of interest as well in the um, ONS revised uh, labor force survey data set, but it's hard to place too much weight, I think, on on what that data set tells us, given the uncertainty that has all the difficulties in the data collection that has surrounded it over, over the last couple of months. So AFIC is very much on inflation and within that, of course, core inflation uh, and then the average weekly earnings data. Um, inflation, we expect to tick up again marginally. I think this is really driven by um, base effects and has been quite well telegraphed. In fact, Bailey referred to the fact that we might see another tick up in inflation this month um, in the uh, monetary policy report last week. Um, so uh, I don't think that that should be overly important. I don't think the market is likely to overinterpret what that might mean for the Bank of England's reaction function. Um, on the flip side, we expect average weekly earnings to show another um, sizable decline. Um, and so to the extent that I said earlier that, you know, it felt like we were at the hawkish end of the spectrum. I think if you were in the camp of thinking that the BOE might be cutting rates in, in May or, or even earlier, I'm not sure that there's anything in next week's data that might change your mind i think you know you might feel vindicated in in that view that that they could be cutting as as soon as may um for me though just to reiterate my new favorite catchphrase you know they are date dependent as much as they are data dependent um even the centrist members have told us that they need to see a few months more data which means that i think in terms of the market reaction and and kind of interpreting what this means for the bank of england's reaction function um you know, each data print now almost takes on a little bit less importance because you kind of have to take the next few data prints as a whole. And we will only be able to assess that in sort of two, three, four months time. And so, you know, having the, the labor market data now for two months ago um, doesn't really tell us much at all about what the labor market data in January or in April um, is going to look like. And of course, we, we won't know that until the middle of the year. So it is the key data week. But um, I don't know that it will give us, you know, without barring major surprises, of course, on, on any of those data prints, I don't know that it will be able to tell us all that much more about the Bank of England's reaction function. Okay, that's probably enough from me. Um, let's flip over to the US, Jan. It feels like a lifetime ago, but we haven't brought up since that um, very surprisingly large NFP print, uh, non-farm payrolls print last Friday, um, which was much bigger than, than I think anybody was expecting. How much, and of course, just comes after a string of, you know, much more resilient data out of the US, uh, as we've seen at the beginning of this year. How much is, is this playing on your mind when it comes to, you know, the Fed call? Um, your view that inflation is is going to be back at target and and that will allow the fed to ease rates as early as may is is are you concerned that they might have to stay on hold for longer or not yet the the data on its own certainly adds more to the risk of the fed staying on hold and i think with what we learned from the fomc meeting we briefly discussed last week too was that you know the, the march meeting was off the table i had mentioned well should we have a a week payrolls maybe march wouldn't be off the table uh, but 
by any means, uh, March kind of you know, blew the top off. It was uh, sorry, not March. The the payrolls from last week blew the top off, and it was uh, I'm going to say almost across the board a, a very very strong number. So to, to begin with, right, we had something like 353,000 jobs added in January. Uh, that was you know that that was well above our and consensus estimates, but it's important to keep in mind there's you know seasonality effects coming in January that are sometimes can be very additive. And if you look at the adjusted data, there's over two and a half million jobs lost typically in January. So it just tends to fluctuate a lot around there. So that was, you know, that certainly beat a beat what we expected, but I don't think it sh- we should be kind of rushing and take it as a signal that there's been a, you know, boost in, uh, in employment again. Uh, instead, what we what we were surprised from were the, the prior two-month revisions, uh, which showed upward revisions for both of the last months. And that was a, kind of a pretty interesting development because we've been kind of on a string of, uh, you know, of reports where the previous estimates were revised lower, 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 despite kind of some of these, uh, the, the current month's numbers coming above expectations. So, uh, again, I don't want to overestimate the impact of seasonality, but there is some in January and and weather effects tend to make the, the month a little bit more complicated, too. I'll get that in a second. Uh, but in any case, a strong number, rates markets reacted accordingly. Similarly, the unemployment rate remained at 3.7% for the third month in a row now. We're not really seeing that moving up uh, kind of as much as we thought at this point, I think, as much as most people would have thought. And finally, the something else to take away from that report that kind of goes back to your question around inflation and whether that would have made difference for the Fed. Usually... Uh, you know, we what we got was an average hourly earnings, a 0.6 increase month on month. That's a very, very high number. And that's you know, well above uh, what pretty much anyone was uh, forecasting, at least that I have seen. Uh, and typically that would have raised some, uh, you know, red flags for, for the path of inflation on, on the wage pressure side. But like I said, it's January, so the average work week fell by a decent amount, probably because we had some inclement weather in the U.S. to, to, be, to start the year with. So when you kind of have these hours lower, uh, you mechanically boost uh, the hourly earnings, uh, you know, given the growth in the overall earning number. So, uh, so like I said, the weather did play some impact. So I don't think that mattered. The, the wage side mattered that much, but the, you know, Certainly, I have to kind of concede that the labor market is still in in pretty decent shape, and you know the de- deterioration hasn't started. The slowdown is happening, but it, it, you know nothing in there screamed that uh, March should be a should be a rate cut. Like I, but again, we never expected March to be a rate cut. We thought that was always too that that's always been too soon. Uh, we're still looking for May. I think the main question here now becomes. Uh, whether they cut in 25 or 50 base point increments. Right now we have 50, but of course that can change too. And I think you know, the way I look at the uh, the inflation versus labor market dynamic, and I like to summarize it as inflation determines when they start cutting and, uh, and, and the strength of the labor market, in my view, will determine how far they will go as far as rate cuts, right? So, uh, so they might start in May because they want to kind of get real rates a little bit more in line with uh, with how inflation has fallen, uh, I would think that when we get the March forecast, we would see uh, the you know median dot showing probably another cut for this year compared to the one we got in December. Uh, that's because inflation has been softer than what they expected, and they have to adjust to that reality. When they made the the forecast that they were going to go to 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 the current rate level, the, inf- the inflation forecasts were well somewhat higher than what we what we are trend what we are 
you know, set to see over the next couple of months. So I think they have to adjust uh, the rate forecast, which means the fact that they have over tightened even from today's perspective. So they have to dial that back a little bit. So I, I still think May is a reasonable guess for rate cuts. The scale of them becomes a questionable, uh, you know, the main question there. Uh, I think personally, if you ask me between 25 and 50 is probably a toss up. Uh, we have 50, but like I said, I'm not going to, you know, uh, press that on. Like, that's not the hill I'm going to die on. So, uh, <laughs> start cutting rates. And, and yeah, uh, so May, May still on the table, strong jobs number, uh, kind of way stronger than we expected. And rates markets reacted out. But before we kind of move on just quickly on uh, what I think this might have, an, like over the next, at least until CPI, uh, you know, impact on rates markets, I think. The front end will, for the like, will, will the front end from now on will price in a certain amount of rate cuts for this year. We're not going to get to a point where uh, I don't want to say never, but the decisions now between holding and cutting. So just by distribution of probabilities, you have to have some cuts in there. We've priced out a decent amount after the non-farm payrolls. Uh, what I think happens from here on is you start kind of uh, showing the weakness from the long end of the curve where. Like these nominal GDP expectations or stronger nominal GDP expectations play out. Uh, the front end remains pinned around called just over four percent, and, and you know the weakness goes from the long end as we kind of get to a point where, where markets start to kind of flirt with the idea that maybe the Fed cuts, but not as much, and then uh, you know, but we still remain on a soft or no landing path, and and I think that's a good setup for a bear steepening type of trades. Okay, that makes sense. You mentioned briefly that um, CPI next week, of course, it's not just the key data in the UK, but we will also get that inflation print out of the US. What are you expecting from that? So we should, in our view, we'll get a, on the headline number, which incorporates food and, uh, and energy. We're looking for 0.2 on a monthly basis. Uh, so again, CPI is not the Fed's preferred measure, but on a headline level, they're pretty much on track uh, to hit the 2% target. Uh, the core side is a little bit stronger. We're looking for uh, 0.3, uh, but that's a very soft 0.3. So unrounded, you're looking at like 0.25, right? Like on a, again, getting close to 0.2. And it, especially on the core goods side, we continue to think used cars will act as a drag to the index. Uh, similarly, you kind of see these like rental measures continuing to show glacial pace but certainly showing some slowdown on a month-on-month -month basis uh, and of course tomorrow morning so friday morning uh by the time this part is out of course uh, this might be a little bit dated but I'm, i just want to kind of put in context for people listening that might be more in the weeds with inflation forecasting that we still don't have the seasonal adjustment so all of, uh, and tomorrow morning we're going to get like the, the revision to the seasonal seasonality factors at the uh that the agency puts out. So, uh, you know, keep in mind that I did not see them yet as I was giving these numbers. <laughs> you know, three is a seasonally adjusted number. Uh, and that might change a little bit tomorrow morning. But so far, this is what we have, which I think is if we if we do get the 0.25 as we expect, or even if it slips into 0.2, I think that's a you know pretty satisfactory number for the Fed. Okay. So all on track still. Right, let's talk Europe then, Joanne. Um, you were, of course, with me this week, seeing lots of clients. Uh, I kind of went through the key takeaways on the UK side. Is there anything that you want to add on the European side? Yeah, so on the European side, I think there were two key kind of key takeaways uh, on the ECB. The first question we had uh, a lot when we were we were doing these rounds earlier last year 
oh, sorry, later last year when we had switched our ECB call to March was whether we had thought that the ECB could cut ahead of the Fed. I think what was interesting this time around is that whilst we were talking to clients about our call, which is now for an ECB cut in June, it did seem like it was a bit of a less, bit of a lower focus on if the ECB can indeed go before the Fed. I just noting that the ECB's picture looks fairly weak with inflation in the euro area, uh, basically at two percent in our uh, in our forecast for the middle of the year, um, and with and with growth data as well in Europe being a little bit weaker. So I think that emphasis on perhaps the ECB having to wait for the Fed has died down a little bit. But I think, you know, what matters most really is that the Fed will go this year and that there isn't a risk of it that they push that rate cutting cycle back. And if there is that indication, I think the ECB could well go uh, this year, even perhaps out of the Fed, um, not to contrast the US team's call, but just in case. <laughs> um, I think the second point to make here is on the size of the cuts. I mean, our base case is but the ECB to cut by 50 basis points. And I think that that um, idea, whilst we didn't get pushed back too much on that idea that if they went late, they might have to go with, with a larger cut. We did get a bit of bit of questioning around our path for or sequencing of interest rate cuts, where we have a path of the ECB plus by 50 and then 225 cuts. Um, I think that in terms of that call, I mean, I think that our key reasoning for having a larger cut in the first instance is that if you see inflation at 2% in the middle of the year, you could well argue that the ECB has been a bit late to, the, to, to start cutting. So that first cut really does make up for lost time. And I suppose the alignment of the cuts with the forecast rounds allows for them to communicate that a bit more clearly and with a renewed sense of forecast as well. So whilst it might be a bit more tricky to communicate, we do think that the ECB could have, uh, could well actually cut by 50 in the first go, given the inflation uh, projections of, and where inflation is by the middle of the year, and then proceed to cut more cautiously, um, given that growth is not necessarily uh, going to be particularly weak in the euro area over the upcoming year. So we don't really have this need for strong, fast cuts in a drastic cutting cycle, even though they do perhaps go 50 in the first go. Um, the other point to add would just be on supply. We, uh, you talked about it a bit, Imogen, but I think it's really important to emphasize that even though the syndications for Q1 are really heavy and are done, we've still got around 400 billion in net supply to get through over the rest of the year and also a trillion in growth supplies. I mean, I think those numbers are certainly not small. And the market, of course, had a big year of supply last year that it absorbed fairly well. But I think rates will, of course, at a different level at that point as well. So I think supply should be a topic that we continue to talk about and should continue to drive markets through the rest of the year as well. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time this week talking about the kind of intricacies of, you know, whether it was the Fed, the ECB or the BOE of May versus June versus August, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, what we're really talking about here is, you know, how quickly can we get back to a level of kind of neutral rates and, and where do we see that level occurring essentially across the different regions? Um, the ECB published this week its own estimate of what it thought the kind of neutral or natural rate of interest was. Um, how does that compare with where you see terminal rates getting to in this cycle? 
So the ECB published this paper where they highlighted a few different methods to calculate neutral and came up with this median number of around 0.3 in real terms or around 2.3% in nominal for the where the neutral rate is. I think that seems this takes up slightly um, since their last estimates where they've had a fairly large range of minus 2 to 2%. So definitely not something... Uh, no, definitely not a small range for them to, to go on the back of. But I think um, that fits in quite well with where we expect the terminal rates to end this cycle. So our base case is that it gets to 225. I think perhaps that at least offers the market some indication of where the ECB could see the end of the cutting cycle, um, which is very much in line with our view, but also perhaps provides some um, some floor to the back to the to the back end of um, the futures long reds contract essentially. Um, so that's pricing for the end twenty twenty five rate rates essentially, um, which which I think really solidifies and gives a floor to that level once the rate cutting cycle starts. I think. Um, so I mean, I don't think we learned anything particularly new, uh, but just that they've slightly revised it upwards. Okay, and, and reinforce our view, I suppose, of, of where that rate could be getting to. Okay, finally then, before we leave it for this week, the other thing that we, of course, once we could get past this somewhat tedious after a while discussion of, of when this rate cutting cycle might begin, uh, was all about sovereign spreads in the euro area. I know that you've been working hard to kind of develop our sovereign spread framework over the last couple of weeks. What would you say are the key conclusions from from um, that and and how is that feeding into you know where you see value in spreads this year? I suppose somewhat uh, luckily but also happily the sovereign spread framework we've developed bodes very well with what we've been saying for a while now, which is really that French spreads to us seem a bit expensive at this point. We've obviously got a year where French supply, both in net and gross terms, is a lot more elevated than the rest of the euro area, and they've also got the likes of the EU to contend with. So we do think that given those factors and actually a macro factor that is perhaps um, less favourable for France, uh, as our scorecard also suggests, it does mean that the French spread is perhaps a bit too uh, tight. And that seemed to be a view that was also shared by the clients we talked to uh, this week, uh, this idea that France might actually be a bit too expensive. Um, The other point that we made as well was on Spain, where Spanish uh, data prints, sorry, where Spanish spreads are perhaps also a bit too wide. We've had this idea for a while now that Spain should trade a bit more like semicolon, and it does seem like the macro fundamentals support that view. And I guess lastly, honestly, uh, I think we were neutral for now. The scorecard also uh, solidifies that opinion, and it seems to be like Italy is trading a lot like a credit uh, at, at this point in time. So it's really about risk more than anything else. Okay, great. Let's leave it there this week. Uh, Thank you, Rose, for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for listening in. And just a reminder, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.